You're listening to The Omni Show. Get to know the people and stories behind the Omni Group's award-winning productivity apps for Mac and iOS. My name's Andrew J. Mason, and today we talk to the co-founder and CEO of Jaunt Motors, Dave Budge, on how he uses OmniGraffle. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of The Omni Show. My name's Andrew J. Mason, and today we're interviewing Dave Budge, CEO and co-founder of Jaunt Motors in Australia. And Dave, tell us a little bit more about who you are, uh, what you do as CEO, and where you find yourself. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for having me on the show. So I live and work in Melbourne in Australia, and we run a small little electric vehicle company. So we take old classic four-wheel drives, in the current case, Land Rovers. If you don't know what that is, it doesn't really matter. Jeep, Land Rover, Land Cruiser, classic boxy 60s, 70s four-wheel drives. And we take out the very underpowered original gasoline engines and put in electric motors and batteries. And what we would say, we remanufacture them. So we tear them down to completely every little piece, repair the things that need repairing because these have been sitting in a backfield for 30, 40, 50 years, rebuild them up with some more modern components, but still try and create the feel. And the important thing for us is that we're not just kind of doing a quick internal combustion engine to electric motor swap. It's about building a complete vehicle and integrating the controls and the gadgets. It's very much about the user experience and making sure that it doesn't have that, I guess, mechanical intimidating factor that particularly old four-wheel drives can have. And it doesn't have that sort of technological intimidation that for for a lot of people, particularly in Australia, who've never driven an EV before, it doesn't have that sort of technological overload as well. So making very approachable, fun vehicles that importantly keep these cars on the road and show that evs can be a lot more than just sort of technological marvels they can do all sorts of kind of utility and and fun things as well well if you happen to spend any time at all browsing jaunt motors's website you'll notice that it's less of a mass-produced crank out kind of a widget style production and more of an artisan handcrafted experience that feels like it's tailored to the end user. Really amazing amount of thought and detail going into this work. Dave, is this an idea that came to you one day that you were just driving your car and saying, hey, I think I'm going to retrofit electric vehicles? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it kind of did. Maybe a bit of both. I think that there's, I think sometimes, you know, a lot of these ideas like this, there may be a little seed that's sort of planted long ago and it rattles around in your brain until it finds a sort of home. But but it did literally become a, a more serious thing where we were driving. So I had a, a full drive like a lot of people do in Australia. We are the highest per capita ownership of SUVs and, and pickup trucks in the world here for necessity sometimes, but then also because that's just what you do here because, oh, one day I need to go in the outback, whether you do or not. So we had a full drive. We're out. We were using it literally to get multiple days out into the bush to camp. You know, that's something that we do quite often. And always felt a little bit guilty to be burning a lot of diesel to get out somewhere into a pristine environment, to be burning a few hundred litres and creating all this carbon emissions to get out somewhere away from all the carbon emissions of the city where I live. And there's cost and all these things and sound, right? And so being able to drive on a full drive track, hear the bush, hear all this stuff, it would be great. I was like, I would just wish that I had an electric full drive. There is none to buy. I would love that. And that kind of 
developed into going, you know what, the technology for converting EVs has matured from something where you had to basically build everything yourself to, you know, manufacturers supplying components and particularly being able to access OEM grade products. There's hundreds of EV manufacturers in China, for example, and the infrastructure is there and all this kind of stuff. So can we help push Australia's adoption of EVs in particular, because we have one of the lowest adoptions of EVs in the developed world, by saying, here's a vehicle that you associate with Australian culture, it's the kind of vehicle that Australians buy, and can we, by making these vehicles electric, can we kind of push that conversation forward? So I sort of felt when you get something that is a personal problem and you can associate a societal problem with that, then you can probably make a business around it. Hopefully, anyway. But this coincided with me trying to figure out what I was going to do next in my career. I was kind of, yeah, just just in a place where I'd, I'd left a previous job and I was sort of, I wanted to get into something that was involved in either energy or agriculture or something that I could see as, while still creating a, a product, because that's what I love doing, that it could have some larger mission and, and be involved in some sort of advocacy and, and that kind of thing. I feel like it's my duty to point this out. This is, uh, we're recording on a video Zoom right now, uh, but the podcast is in audio. And so this is how hardcore Dave is. He's actually recording out of his, out of his car <laughs> using AirPods. So when you say that, though, that may be under the wrong impression that I'm in one of the cars that I'm talking about. No, I'm in a 2014 Honda Fit uh, hatchback. <laughs> so this is the car, right? So it's not as, it's not as romantic as it might sound. And also an old Land Rover wouldn't sound as good because they are okay. just kind of bare sheet metal and uh, not too much uh, comfort and practicality. And to the original product idea, I have to say there is something, I feel like the best ideas feel so, aha, of course, you know, <laughs> of course, in retrospect, we shouldn't be driving vehicles with high emissions going out into the middle of nature where <laughs> just the irony of that is off the charts. And you feel like, why hasn't anybody thought of this before? Tell everybody how you came across OmniGraphle and the Omni Group and how this company intersected with your life. So my previous life was in technology. So I started building, I guess, interactive CD-ROMs in the late 90s. So using things like Macromedia Director and, and all these kinds of tools, and then moved into web design and development and, and early dot-com stuff, and had always used a Mac, for, except for a short little window there in the early 2000s, always used Omni products for a long, long time. Probably, I'm not sure when Omni started, but I feel like it's always been there as a company that I've been aware of and used tools for as long as I can remember, so maybe 20 years. So I'd used tools on and off. And I think as someone who's developed, done a lot of interaction design, mostly for, for the web and some occasionally some software design, I'm just interested in what's going on. I'm interested in companies doing interesting stuff. I'm interested in alternative softwares and, and ideas of human-computer interaction and all these kinds of things. So I think I was using Omni products and OmniGraphle because I've had a license for a long time before I ever have really had a need because I thought, oh, this is a really interesting thing um, and played around with it. And then suddenly I find, fast forward 20 years, 15 years, whatever, I find myself in a position where I'm running an electric vehicle company, and part of that is obviously wiring, electrical wiring. And the the market out there for electrical wiring is really is extremes. There's some free utilities, 
there's some very, very hardcore, like you might think of like, say, SolidWorks Electrical, which is designed for the physical and electrical design of a city, basically. Then all of these things, though, are often coming from a place where everyone using that has an electrical engineering degree is it's all about you know symbol placements and of course omnigraph will you know you can you can go and, and download a, a symbol set that is all electrical symbols but we've got a business where the people in it but what we're doing is not just electrical schematics that go out to a factory it's a handcrafted hand-built product with people from all different backgrounds most of whom aren't able to just look at an electrical schematic and read the symbols. So being able to draw a beautiful, yes, intentionally, but I'm oh, trying to be, but a, a very human readable document where the headlight looks like a headlight, the switch looks like the actual switch that you're installing on the dash, the plug looks like the plug. It means that it's a lot simpler for a lot of different people in the workshop to be able to read. It's not just the domain of one specialist who has to translate that. And it's also an important thing for us to be able to create documentation that is usable for the customer. So we hand the keys over to these cars. There's a QR code on a badge under the hood, and they can scan that and they can get all the technical documentation and every part that's in the car, and they can also get all the wiring diagrams. And if you've ever done work on a car, from an OEM, it's a real struggle sometimes to find any documentation because they control it and they sell it as part of a pack to dealerships or whatever. And you know, maybe someone on a forum has got a PDF of it somewhere and it's all it's scanned in and you can't find it. So being able to create documentation that was very useful for us, for all the people in the workshop, and then had a life beyond us because it was human readable, I guess. And that just means, hey, it's colorful, not just black and white with color codes. It's got images of things and it's laid out in a way that makes sense when you look at the physical thing and you compare that to the diagram you can see the relationship there and so putting that extra work in to create something that yeah i I guess and in the end by doing that looks like quite a beautiful interesting thing that's i guess kind of a lucky byproduct in a way you mentioned this timeline that kind of heralded back to the early days of Apple, and it makes me think of how when the engineers were putting all of this extra forethought and detail into spaces the customer didn't usually see, like the inside of the computer, just how wasteful some people thought that that was, but how important it was that they, they figured that, you know, it's important that we make this beautiful everywhere for the customer. And I feel like that same level of detail and forethought is kind of going into your processes and systems, which is really nice. Mm. For somebody that's first using OmniGraffle or even generally in software, there's the technicalities of it. So, yeah, you can take a tutorial and learn about this software. But what's the thinking process behind that? Mm. I have a feeling there's not just the technical skills happening here. Yeah, so I guess if you just look on the surface, there's big drawings with a lot of wires and a lot of lines and a lot of connections and a lot of labels, and you can see the amount of mouse clicks that I've done in that. But the real effort is that is also a way of designing the circuitry. So it's not just a, we have the circuit design and then we do a pretty version of it. This is the circuit design and, you know, the 10 versions of whatever one of our diagram you're looking at. There's probably 10 versions of that that has been become more advanced and we've been able to, and this is, again, an important thing about being human readable by everyone, is that we can print out a giant print of that and talk with the whole team about 
okay, this button is linked to this thing and that triggers that relay and that therefore enables this mode in the car, do we think that's right or should it connect here? And everyone can kind of point and, and work through it and we can have this, you know, I guess to make computers, software, it's all it's really one thing. It's just communicating to other humans, right? Everything that computers are built for is just ways of communicating to other people, whether it's art or science or whatever, or Zoom right now. But that getting stuff out of our brains to talk to other people about it is a really important thing and it helps make better products, right? So being able to having that thought, for me, the challenge coming into that is I'd never designed anything so complex before. I've you know, done circuit design and you've done some of that work, but it, not to the level of designing it on paper. And I think I come from a very hands-on, I'm a visual designer, I guess, by background ultimately. So I need the visuals to help it stick in my brain. And so designing that in OmniGraphal in that way and literally laying out the components and finding a starting point, I guess, it's, it can be overwhelming, this stuff. There's a combination of technical integration so how are all the wires running between all the things, but also physical layout on the page. So I think that the challenge with something like OmniGraphle is that it is not designed as purely as an electrical diagram software. And if you were to jump into that space, it's a very different process. It's basically fill out a spreadsheet with all the connectors that you need, the wire colors by code, IDs, and then it will auto-generate schematics and layouts for you. And that's amazingly helpful. But what it doesn't do is that often those schematics will, it's a correct wiring diagram, but it bears no relationship to the physical product. So you've got part A is in the physical space up the top. But on the schematic, it's down the bottom and everything's all crazy moved around. And it might make sense from a wiring perspective, but it's just another barrier between people understanding how that relates to the physical thing. So spending the time creating something that you can almost hold up the wiring diagram that we've created against the physical product, the layout makes sense. The things that are at the top and the left are at the top left and and it all kind of connects in a certain way, which... I think was yeah worth the time helped me anyway as a visual as a visual thinker i feel like we've caught on i want to tease that out for the audience though it's so brilliant that there's some software that has this feedback loop that happens in advance and once you go through that design process however you go through that design process you hit a button and then it spits out the schematic and the schematics an afterthought that goes into a machine or is machine language what i hear you saying here is that with omnigraphle the software became a part of that feedback loop and became a part of that conversation which then informed the actual design and then back and forth one informing the other as the product gets designed alongside of itself that is really cool we're in this funny space between individual construction and way over the other side oem level you know hundreds of thousands of units and whereas there's there's often i find a gap between hobbyist and the real, when I say pro, I mean, you know, someone designing the circuit diagram for the next Chevy or whatever, right? It's a whole other level because you're designing a wiring diagram for a robot to make hundreds of thousands of units. It doesn't have to be beautiful. It doesn't want to be. 
it's basically machine language, right? So how we kind of create something that is still handmade, but comes with a level of repeatability, quality control that you expect, you're buying a car, you still expect a level of quality and thought and documentation. And our customers aren't, for the most part, people who've ever thought about engine swaps or car modification. They're people who've come to us and go, I love it. I'd love one jaunt, please. I'd love it in blue, uh, like the large battery pack. They're thinking about buying, uh, I guess, in quotation marks, a new car and everything that comes with that, not talking to us about individual things. So we're not just throwing in parts. We're not just being a custom mechanic where you don't expect that kind of thing because you've kind of commissioned this custom object. We're trying to build a repeatable platform that then can have a kind of customized wrapper on it. Okay, this next question is slightly loaded. It can apply to OmniGraffle or just Jaunt Motors in general. Is there any mistakes that you've made along the way where, man, I, I, I know this can be instructional for somebody. <laughs> if you're not me, don't do this. <laughs> um, this is like a whole other podcast in itself. Um, <laughs> yeah, for, for all of us. Yeah, we're starting a, a small vehicle company here. I think that we, my co-founder, Martine, um, she's, I've worked with her on and off 12, 13 years in different capacities. She comes from a production management background. So we've worked together really well as people with different priorities, I guess, the same goal, but competing priorities, which is a really nice balance. Both of us, however, are very optimistic and positive. And that's a strength that you need in a startup because that helps you be more resilient and gets you through, you know, creating a startup in the middle of a global pandemic and all of these other things. But I think with that comes, you have to have a level of perhaps hubris to start certain kinds of startups. Like, oh, let's start a car company, right? And with that is going to inevitably come mistakes. And I think that we... For people around the world who aren't perhaps in the United States, so much media, so much influence comes out of the United States in terms of the way that business works, that startups work. The idea in Australia that you can go into somewhere with just a PowerPoint deck and, and come out with a few million dollars to go away and start R&D is not really practical here. And so I was just reading about Rivian, the electric truck company that just rolled their first vehicle off the production line yesterday. They've been working on that for 10 years. The guy who started it had no background in anything, just went in and started an electric vehicle company in 2009. I'm getting a little sidetracked here, but the challenge for us was we dove in and started doing, just doing stuff. We tried really hard not to start just building a car. However, you can't really avoid it. And by that, I mean, we could have and perhaps should have in hindsight really gone in and spent six months purely on research, talking to suppliers, talking to manufacturers, talking to, you know, figuring all this out on paper. However, creating a proof of concept is also important. But what we learned very quickly, and maybe it was a good thing to learn quickly, was that the industry was not as developed as we thought it was. The level of quality and reliability wasn't where we thought it was. People had been building and converting electric cars. But if you're a hobbyist, kind of the hobbyist level converting cars for yourself, you can get away with some stuff that may be a little bit dangerous or a little bit confusing because the owner, the user, the person commissioning that or building that 
knows the tech intricately and knows that you've got to flick 18 switches and turn dial or, you know, the batteries will get too hot or whatever it might be. So I think that we have, as much as we thought we could perhaps just dive in and get stuff done, and that continues to this day, forcing ourselves to be, find this balance between research, methodology, process versus just diving in and making a car and making it go uh, has been the challenge. And I think that's where there's a, and I actually made a YouTube video of it on our, on our channel because one of our customers said to us once when he called me and I was actually working on a much earlier version of the wiring diagram and he called me and I answered and he's like, how are you going? And I'm just like, oh, I'm deep into this wiring and diagram stuff, doing the documentation. And he said, documentation is really hard work until you get to this tipping point where it starts working hard for you. And I was like, yes, yes, you've given me the motivation to get back and click more wires because that's where we've got to. So forcing ourselves to just hold. And while we know we could plug that thing together and make that thing work today, let's wait to finish the documentation and do it tomorrow because we can't go back. And I think that that's my learning coming from a primarily software development world. Undo is easy. Yes, there's redo work is is still the work, right? But you don't have a sunk cost in physical product. So you have each letter in the code hasn't cost you money. It's cost you time, but you're not throwing away money in product. And that's been a hard lesson to learn to go, yes, let's just make sure we get it right in software before we go into the real world because we will save money ultimately. You know, Dave, you just triggered a memory for me. I didn't have this in my notes. And honestly, I, I don't know if it's going to make it through the, the edit or not. One of my favorite interviews I've ever done was uh, with an actor. His name was Michael J. Nelson, and he ran a show called Mystery Science Theater 3000 for a couple of years. And oh, yeah. if you're not familiar, it's just a really, really low-budget show where they buy the rights to old, stinky movies, and they have silhouettes at the bottom of the movie theater like they're they're watching the movie along with you, and, and they make fun of it. It's a hilarious concept and a really funny show, yeah. but it's so low-budget. Yeah. But uh, I remember asking him, hey, you know, what made you guys successful i mean it's showing up on cable networks like this is a successful show and i'll never forget he said i think one of our biggest assets was our ignorance there was nobody in our crew that was so experienced that they were telling us what we shouldn't be able to do and so we just went ahead and did it yeah i think that that's a really interesting point because i think that you can it's almost a cliche that there's this the old guy in the industry who's like oh yeah i've tried that it's never going to work on the flip side, there's people that I've worked with who, from that experience, can immediately find the great solution, you know. And But we definitely came up against that. Australia has a long history of failed EV experiments. We had a bit large car industry once. That's all kind of left. But along with that, we had people trying to create a number of EV startups, which have all failed for a couple of reasons, I guess. And I'm obviously with the benefit of hindsight, and I can simplify this a little bit. But on one hand, the EVs weren't cool yet. Infrastructure perhaps wasn't there or the public understanding of infrastructure wasn't there. But also, they were primarily engineers. They were focusing on the logical reasoning, focusing on the tech. So here is a small city transport van 
And if you look at the top cost of ownership compared to this one that you could buy, it would equal this and you get this savings here and you go, in the end, you're paying three times as much for a pretty boring car that has no emotional connection and no aspiration to you. And people aren't buying cars based on logic. Otherwise, we'd all be driving like minivans, like very fuel-efficient minivans or something, right? Because they're the most practical. But we don't. We buy stupid cars but because they're an expression of us, right? And some people don't care about cars. And, and look, to be honest, I don't come from a car background. I only got my driver's license when I was 27. But I'm lucky to live in a city with great public transport and very bikeable and all of that kind of stuff. But I do love cars from a design object point of view and a human interaction point of view. And I think that what they missed was the beauty and the emotion and in our case, nostalgia to these certain vehicles. So coming into this naivety allowed us to go, yeah, I know, look, you have to disregard the haters in a way, but it's just going, let's just keep pushing forward. We know we don't know a lot of stuff. Let's just dive in because we know we know one thing. And in your example, it's like, we know how to make a funny, interesting show. We know that the end product resonates and for us that's the same thing we have a vision of the end product we may be taking the silliest most winding path to get there but if that product resonates that's that's what's important that's awesome dave and i encourage you if if this sounds like an interesting concept to you at all check it out dave how can people connect with your journey there's multiple ways i know yeah so youtube is good for some sort of technical deep dive stuff we post semi-regularly once every month or two there's a bunch of content coming around more sort of technical details and cars and then uh, our instagram is good for regular stories and sort of behind the scenes stuff linkedin is often a place where i post a lot of stuff too and that talks about i guess some some more of the business side of things and what we're up to but we're on all the social media even on we're even on tiktok and things you know so to anybody in our listening audience from australia highly recommend you check it out Dave, thank you so much for spending time with us. That's been an honor. Thanks so much. I will say just we'll be delivering our first car to U.S. customers January, I think. That's awesome. So United States in January 2022 as well. Hey, and thank all of you for listening today, too. As always, you can drop us a line at The Omni Show on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you there. You can also find out everything that's happening with The Omni Group at omnigroup.com slash blog. 